Go ahead and open up your Bibles to Hebrews with me, Hebrews 5. We're going to look at the end of chapter 5, and then we will go into chapter 6 this evening. Hebrews 5, we will pick it up in verse uh, verse 11. Hebrews 5, verse 11. These are the words of God. Concerning him, we have much to say, and it is hard to explain since you have become dull of hearing. For though by this time you ought to be teachers, you have need again for someone to teach you the elementary principles of the oracles of God, and you have come to need milk and not solid food. For everyone who partakes only of milk is not accustomed to the word of righteousness, for he is an infant. But solid food is for the mature, who because of practice have their senses trained to discern good and evil. Therefore, leaving the elementary teaching about the Christ, let us press on to maturity, not laying again a foundation of repentance from dead works and of faith toward God, of instruction about washings and laying on of hands and the resurrection of the dead and eternal judgment. And this we will do if God permits. For in the case of those who have once been enlightened and have tasted the heavenly gift and have been made partakers of the Holy Spirit and have tasted the good word of God and the powers of the age to come and then have fallen away, it is impossible to renew them again to repentance, since they again crucify to themselves the Son of God and put Him to open shame. For ground that drinks the rain which often falls on it and brings forth vegetation useful to those for whose sake it is also tilled receives a blessing from God. But if it yields thorns and thistles, it is worthless and close to being cursed, and it ends up being burned." Let us go ahead and pray together. Our Father and God, we ask now that you would grow us up, mature us so that we can have our senses trained to discern good and evil. We know, Father, that unless you do this, we will walk the path of Adam, circumventing the knowledge you have given us in your word and instead believing a lie. We repent, therefore, for seeking secret knowledge, which is just evil cloaked in pious language. Teach us, Lord, to taste and see that you are good. It's in Christ's name that I pray. Amen. We have uh, been working through the book of Hebrews together, and this is actually message number eight. There we go. And up until this point, we've been spending um, a lot of time talking about how Jesus is greater. Jesus is greater. He is greater than the angels. He's greater than Moses. And last week, we looked at the atonement of Christ, which basically sets up Jesus as the greater Aaron. Aaron was the high priest who was chosen by God, um, and in a similar manner, Jesus is now the permanent high priest today. So the atonement of Aaron pointed to the all-sufficient atonement of the Lord Jesus Christ. The entire context of the book of Hebrews is focused on the fact that Jesus Christ is the greater Joshua. Jesus is the greater Joshua. And because of this, we are to be indefatigable people, diligent 
to conquer the world with the gospel message. Jesus is Joshua, Israel, uh, the church is Israel. The world is now our promised land that we, the meek, will inherit. Which means that we have been restored through Christ's atonement. We have been restored to a position of covenant keeping. And this covenant keeping includes something huge, a huge task for us. That is the subduing of the nations with the law and the gospel of God. That's our, that's our big task, and we talk about that a lot around here, but we need to keep it out in front of us. We have been tasked with subduing the nations with the law and the gospel of God. When men and women and children are taught the crown rights of King Jesus, and then they are conscripted into this invading army, they are, as a consequence, tasked with discipleship. They are tasked with discipling the nations. So when the Spirit of God, and children, you need to hear this too, when the Spirit of God regenerates your heart and changes you, it's now your job to be obedient to Him in all facets of life. Now, I know as kids it can be challenging because really the only thing you know at this point, you know, what mommy and daddy say, that's what you need to do. And that is true. Um, because in, in a parent's job is to teach you how to obey Christ. And so that, that's, what, that's what your job is right now. So when the, when the Spirit changes you, it's your job um, to be obedient to Him in all facets of life. So the dominion mandate is now given to you on this gospel platter, and your job is to simply pick it up and wield it in everything. That's what you have to do. And yet... We look around at our current cultural debacle, and we might be tempted to think, well, maybe Jesus actually hasn't called us to that task. Maybe that's not what he meant. Maybe we can sort of just explain the Great Commission away. You know, he was talking to his disciples. You know, it had been a rough crucifixion, um, and, and the resurrection was great and glorious, but maybe, maybe it wasn't all that glorious. Maybe we aren't um, really going to ever disciple the nation, so we, maybe we shouldn't try we are tempted to think that. You know, maybe he's not Joshua, maybe, uh, maybe Hebrews is wrong, and maybe there is no place in the church for this type of thinking. Rest assured that that temptation is very, very wrong. The problem around us is a result of the church giving in to that temptation, giving in to the temptation to think that all that's just wishful thinking and that we don't have any place in speaking in education, in politics, um, taxation, everything. It also stems, though, from a, another problem we're going to unpack this evening. Faith in God does not displace or replace obedience. Faith in God does not displace or replace obedience. Rather, faith demands obedience. Faith doesn't displace or replace obedience. Faith demands obedience. Um, maybe more to, to fit the context of this passage, I'll say it another way. Knowledge of God leads to obedience to God. And, and let's even be more precise. Put the word true in front of, front of that. True knowledge of God leads to a life of obedience. True knowledge of God, I'm qualifying that, I realize, but true knowledge of God leads to a life of obedience. So we're talking not about knowledge that is often passed in television, knowledge that's passed around even in the church. Um, 
which some of it's true, some of it may not be. We're talking about true, a true knowledge. No, how do you know something? A true epistemology. You're awakened by the Spirit to the truth of God. That is the true part. The modern church has sadly chosen to drive a wedge between faith and works, law and grace, and so on. And at the root of all of that is an issue of slothfulness. In other words, the modern church today thinks that one's belief depends solely on doctrinal orthodoxy, and it doesn't include orthopraxy, praxy being the practice of your doctrine. So as, you know, as long, this is the type of thinking, as long as we obey, or as long as we believe these core truths, it doesn't actually matter if we really obey them and do something with them. As long as you know you know, Jesus died for you, justification by faith, so on, these basic doctrines. As long as you know them, and we think that we don't have to do anything with them. So this is what I, I'm going to call the, the modern heresy of selective obedience. The modern heresy of selective obedience, which, frankly, it's not new. It stems from Genesis 3, but that's a different story. So we have cooked up this idea that one can have right doctrine and that the only thing that matters, the only act of re- obedience required of you, is making sure that you revisit that doctrine over and over and over and over again. It has no ramifications for anything outside of you, and it certainly does not have any ram- ramifications for the civil magistrate and the culture at large. This heresy has plagued the church, and it is time that we expose it. So, let's consider our text and we'll, we'll just walk through this pretty quickly, and you can follow along there. We learn in verse 11 that the writer would like to talk more about Melchizedek. But before he does that, and he's going to get to it eventually, before he does that, he has to issue a rebuke. And when you read this passage, you, you should feel as though the writer were sitting next to you and slapping you right across the cheek. Uh, this is a rebuke. This isn't, you know, uh, this word of comfort. This is a rebuke. Talking about these types of things that he's going to talk about, um, it's hard to explain. And the hardness of the teaching isn't because the content is difficult. The problem is because of the listener. He is dull of hearing. The listener has become dull of hearing. Quite literally, there's a laziness in the ears. The laziness of the ears. The word, um, the dull of hearing there, the word is used twice in the New Testament and only twice, and it's used here and in the next chapter in verse 12. The indictment on the Hebrews, that's why this this is a rebuke, it's an indictment, it's very simple. They've become lazy. They had become lazy. They had committed the sin of slothfulness, but not just generally speaking, their hearing of the word of God has led to a laziness towards it. Their hearing of the word led to a laziness towards it. Now, remember who we're talking about. Presumably written by Paul, he sends this letter to Jewish Christians. Jewish Christians. And in this type of environment, um, they had seen themselves as wise and mature believers, unlike the Gentiles. So they had this inflated um, posture towards them, and because of it, it had made them dull, made them slothful. So just kind of a... Anyone who tries to assert his own superiority over others tends to become less willing to learn. When someone tries to, 
you know, sort of just do this overhanded, you know, I'm in charge, you're not. When you tend to assert your superiority over others and you do it kind of with that little bit of extra, you know, little ego hand, you know, sleight of hand there, you tend to become less willing to learn. So you can have more degrees than a thermometer, <laughs> but don't mistake that for wisdom and maturity. Just because you have a bunch of letters after your last name, that does not equal maturity. It does not mean suddenly you've arrived because you know how to you know, talk about the eternal functional subordination of the Son and the Trinity, or not. <laughs> so in verse 12, the rebuke continues. They should have become teachers by now. They should have become teachers by now. Instead of teaching others, they need someone to come to teach them the basics again. Why? Why would they need that? Well, because the basics didn't lead to maturity. The foundational stuff did not lead to maturity. They, they should be on solid food. Note the metaphor here. They should be eating solid food, but instead they need milk. So I, I'm talking about the guy who's been in church 30 years and he can't tell you anything about the law of God. He can, but he can sure tell you John 3.16, but he can't tell you anything else. The ABCs of Christianity should have led them to be writing volume, uh, uh, volumes and volumes of stuff, tome after tome. But instead, they have become content with basically just knowing the alphabet. Now, there's a problem in this verse. Verse 13 says that everyone who is on a diet of milk is not accustomed to the word of righteousness, the word of justice, because he's an infant. In other words, babies aren't good at interpreting the word of God. They are unskilled at interpreting the word and applying the word. One can have, one can have an advanced knowledge of something, yet lack understanding. You can, you can know a lot and not understand. The knowledge that puffs up, Paul warns about this, is the knowledge that is sought apart from knowing the living God. That's what Adam and Eve did. Adam's pursuit of knowledge should have been, Adam and Eve should have pursued knowledge in, in God, but they decided to break covenant and pursue knowledge their own way, sort of a Gnostic heresy. So having issued the rebuke, the, he clarifies, the writer, what he means by solid food. And look at verse 14, the end of chapter 5. Solid food is for the mature, and maturity is defined as those who have practiced their theology, not just studied it. Maturity is defined by those who have practiced their theology, not just studied it. Solid food can be consumed only by the mature, and the reason that they are mature has to do with the fact that their senses, the entirety of their lives, what they taste, touch, see, smell, and feel... All of it is trained to discern good and evil. Now, we're going to come back to verse 14. That's really the, the, the gut punch there. So you probably want to underline that one and come back to it. What is solid food? What is maturity? That's it. Discerning good and evil. So herein lies the crux of the problem, crux of the matter. The foundational doctrines, the elementary teachings about Christ, that's in chapter 6, verse 1, ought to be built upon. These are foundational, elementary principles. They ought to be built upon. No one finishes the foundation of a house and stops working and thinks, I'm done. 
No one builds the foundation, lays the footers, you know, everything's set for the basement, and then he stops thinking that the house has been built. We are, by God's grace, to press on to maturity, not laying again and again the same foundation. What's the same foundation? Verse 2, repentance and faith. Basic concepts that the church today continues to repeat ad nauseum. Washings, baptism, laying on of hands, the resurrection of the dead, and eternal judgment. Verse 3, and this is another key verse. He says, and this we will do if God permits. This pressing on to maturity, this building on the foundation, we will do by God's grace and only by God's grace. Maturity must be cultivated. It must be pursued. And the maturity that we're talking about is not repeating the same old simple doctrines ad nauseum, but rather intellectual discernment, the aptitude for apprehending the implications of doctrine in the real world and thus acting on those implications. Okay, that's the, that's the issue here. We're going to do it by God's grace. We have to cultivate maturity in our own lives. And the, and the maturity we're talking about is discernment, discerning good and evil. The fact alone that someone has to stop and think about whether or not public school education is a legitimate form of education it shows how immature the church is. Very, very immature. But what happens to those who don't press on to maturity, but instead they find themselves backwards sliding on the sanctification scale? The type of person who rejects all of it, right? What happens when instead of growth and maturity and sanctification, we have stagnation, we have spiritual retardation? What happens to the person who was enlightened? Those who heard the truth, verse 4, who heard the truth proclaimed. What about the person who, he says, tasted the heavenly gift, who outwardly experienced all the benefits of the gift of new life in Christ? What happens to that person who was made a partaker of the Holy Spirit, the ones who participated in the life of the community um, where the Spirit clearly worked and moved and saturated our lives? What about the person who tasted the good word of God? The guy who attended Bible studies all the time. In fact, his Bible was so awesome, he had a sweet Bible cover on it with a handle. What about that guy? What about the person who tasted the powers of the age to come? Verse 5. The one who experienced this new world order because of Christ's work, this new creation. What happens to him? And the text answers the question. The person who experienced all of this and then falls away, verse 6, he cannot be renewed again to repentance. And that's because you cannot crucify Jesus again. You can't even put him to open shame again. The person who had all the visible elements of covenantal obedience, all of the visible elements were there. Um, He had it in his mind but he didn't have in his heart. That person, and he walks away from all of the visible manifestations of his covenantal obedience. That person is dead. They're dead. They're covenantally dead. Jesus says in John 15, if you don't abide in me, you're cut off the vine. You're cut off the branches and burned. So that's an issue of covenant. So that's the language used in Hebrews 6 here. The, the people falling away were people who had all the covenantal signs, but they lacked maturity, they lacked growth, And they wanted it that way, and they were then burned. So that person, he keeps going, verses 7 and 8, he's not like the mature who 
has good ground. He brings forth vegetation to those who need it. He receives the blessing from God, verse 7. Instead, this type of covenant apostate is ground that produces thorns and thistles, a reminder of covenant Eden, who is cursed, worthless, and fit for eternal punishment in hell, verse 8. Those in covenant who are mature, who are pursuing the dominion mandate. That's, that's what maturity is. Those who were in covenant, but they were cut from the vine because they didn't abide in Christ, they have not pursued the dominion covenant, but they have instead preferred God's sanctions, His curse on creation. That's why He says they're thorns and thistles. So they traded the truth about God for a lie. They worshiped the creation instead of the Creator who is blessed forever. Amen. So what, what gives a man over to this type of covenantal apostasy is a self-conscious decision, one that's not forced on him to leave Christ, his first love. It isn't because he was weak, he couldn't understand what the preacher was saying. It was because they didn't want Christ to rule over their whole person. And either Christ will rule over you and all of you, or he'll send you to the fire. This is a sharp rebuke, a sharp warning we should take seriously. So that's our text. That's the summary of it. I want to shift gears, and I want to explore the concept of maturity some more. In today's parlance, maturity tends to be equated with those who are older, who don't laugh at scatological humor, who have developed the wherewithal to stay away from crude joking and other sorts of things. In a lot of ways, maturity is cloaked in modern psychology. We can call it psychobabble. We should call it psychobabble. And because of it, we create things like adolescence and gender bending. While this type of thinking is predominant in today's culture, it is also dominant in the church. Because of the passage here and the true indictment that it is, modern evangelicals have had to lower the bar of maturity so as to be able to attain it. Instead of being able to discern between good and evil which is what verse, um, chapter 5, verse 14 says, maturity in solid food is. Many Christians think that maturity is being able to rehearse tulip and do it all against the papists. For some, maturity means being able to say that he or she has been a member of a church for 30 years. That's typically the badge I've heard in my experience several times. Um, I've been here you know, 30 years and my great-great-grandfather built the first building, you know, the one before we built the $3 million youth wing, the old one. My great-great-grandfather built that. So that's maturity. For others, maturity means attending a, a Sunday school class, uh, which aren't inherently wrong, but attending it all about eschatological events. And even still, there are some who think that the point of the Christian life is to listen to a preacher each week pontificate on things he knows nothing about, all the while sitting there quietly saying nothing, while unqualified elders continue to use the session as a means of tyranny. Like that's maturity, just keeping quiet. So we have active immaturity and passive immaturity. Childish faith ought to be distinguished from childlike faith, as Dr. Sproul has taught us. But a failure to make the distinction brings further judgment. The average Christian attending church regularly thinks that maturity is wrapped up in all of that. Membership, frequency of communion, Sunday school lessons on the rapture and the seven-year tribulation. 
And even maturity can be wrapped up in the decision of what color of carpet they should pick for the lobby because that's only for the mature. The reality is, however, the average evangelical still has his training wheels on. The average evangelical still has his training wheels on. Psalm 34.8 says, Oh, taste and see that the Lord is good, which means that we are supposed to partake of God. All of our senses are to be engaged in our covenantal relationship with God. You and I are given new lives, and we are to give those new lives over to a pursuit of the knowledge of God. And it's not a sin to do so. There's this anti-intellectual behavior out there that says pursuing knowledge is sinful. It's not. Paul tells us in 1 Corinthians 14.20, he says this, Brethren, do not be children in your thinking, because we don't know, kids, we're still learning, right? Don't be children in your thinking, yet be evil, <clears throat> yet in evil be infants. So understand evil the way, you know, but in your thinking be mature. In other words, it's not as though the pursuit of knowledge of God um, uh, is mature, and the immature, the babies, are those who dare, don't care about sound doctrine. Right, you guys with your seven hundred page rust rush duty books, that is just so immature. I'm over here, you know, with my fantasy football team. Clearly, I'm the mature. Not a dig on fantasy football. We're going to talk about football later, actually. <clears throat> you can know a whole lot about reform doctrine and be cast into hell. You can know a whole lot about post millennialism, amillennialism and any other ism you want, and be cast into hell. So that's not what's at stake here. What's at stake is our thinking, our understanding, not just our knowledge. We only see dimly, but that's not even to say that we shouldn't try to see. Here's the thing. The Bible encourages us, demands us, to pursue sound doctrine. We should pursue sound doctrine. Each of us should be adamant about getting our theology straight, We need to understand the ABCs. We need to know how to defend justification by faith alone. We need to know why we choose to baptize our infants or not. We need to know these things. If you do not know these things, then we have a different problem. You don't even have a foundation. So so pursuit of these things is not inherently a problem. The problem is when in our pursuit of these things, we never get around to, doing, to actually doing something with it. When we, have, when we have to rehearse the same old foundational things over and over and over again, we become dull of hearing. Listen, dull hearing turns the sword of the Word of God into a butter knife. Dull hearing turns the sword of the Word of God into a butter knife. The point of the sword of the Word of God is for us to wield it in all of life. So the shameful part in this is not that there are people who need milk. That's not the shameful part. Who would shame a baby for consuming milk? Right? Who, who makes fun of a three-month-old infant for not eating steak? No one does that. Well, no sane person. So that's not the issue. The rather, the issue is there are people who ought to have moved past the milk and should be eating solid food by now. Pursuing doctrinal milk is about as odd as a 40-year-old man wanting milk from his mother. 
That's how we should see this. It's that weird. So instead of building on these elementary principles, we get, we get the foundational stuff down and then we quit. We stop. Listen to Psalm 119, verse 72. The law of your mouth is better to me. The law of your mouth, God, is better to me than thousands of gold and silver pieces. Question, is the law of God worth more to you than that? Judging by the fact that we now have more information available to us than just a click of a button than ever before, that, that we have Bibles for just about everything, you know, midlife crisis Bibles and, uh, you know, Bibles for, for women who are five feet two or something. We have Bibles for everything. Are we better off for it? Is the church of Jesus Christ better off now because we now have access to our Bibles in our pockets, on our iPads, and our computers? I think that the silence is deafening. The reason that we do not have post-millennial success The success that we are seeking is because the law of God is worthless to us. That's why we're not seeing it. The law of God is worthless to us. Silver and gold worth more than that? I don't think so. That's the current mindset. Now, the core of the problem Hebrews addresses at this point isn't the pursuit of knowledge, nor is it the availability of knowledge. The problem isn't even the elementary principles themselves, the foundational doctrines that everybody should have down pat. Listen, The problem is an unwillingness to take those foundational doctrines and build something with them. If the average evangelical worked at his job with as much zeal as he does his pursuit of theology and application of said theology, he'd be fired in a day. This is partly why the sporting scene is such a money machine. Men can't sit anymore and read a 500-page book but they can tell you the stats from their favorite teams and players. Their infantile idiocy is why Johnny Football gets to make millions of dollars catching a ball made of pigskin. And I love the pigskin, okay? Don't get me wrong. What we have today is what I've called an evangelical Milky Way. And instead of using the law word of God to discern between good and evil, we'd rather sip on, on, on our insure than get our hands dirty. That's what we want. We have that because that's what we want. And the writer wants to talk about Christ's priesthood and how it pertains to Melchizedek. And and he wants to do something with that. He wants to teach us something with it. But he can't do it because his listeners are dull of hearing. They can't even hear it. The same goes for the pulpits today. Now, one problem is the fact, one problem with this is the fact that pastors are the ones giving the milk, and they are doing so quite readily. This sort of anti-intellectual behavior makes his job so much easier. He doesn't have to rock the boat by talking about things that maybe he shouldn't, and he doesn't have to risk someone else in the room being smarter than him. He gets to keep his flock in a perpetual preschool so he doesn't have to do the hard work of proving his accreditation. Wow, this Easter... Pastor plans on explaining the proofs of the resurrection again. I've loved that for the past 30 years. (laughs) Actual conversation I've had. This type of behavior 
fosters an environment of milk which eventually leads which eventually leads to things like abortion apathy and a lack of involvement in politics and education and you name it. It also fosters an environment that thinks that you know that that stealing money from others through taxation and then trying to educate children is a noble thing. So instead of instead of doing the hard mature work of discerning between good and evil and seeing for example I've said it already but the the that our government schools and everything else is such a wicked institution. Instead of doing the hard work and coming to that righteous conclusion, the pastor promotes it, sends his kids there, all in the name of being sent salt and light. Now, why they don't send their kids to Muslim countries to be salt and light is never answered. When we fail to see maturity as the applications, application of doctrine in all areas of life, we find ourselves right where we are. Seminaries can crank out pastors who can parse a Greek verb like no one else, but they're not sure if they should preach against the civil magistrate. They're not sure if they should deal with day-to-day issues. They're not sure if they should be at that local you know, government meeting and, and promote righteousness. They're not, they're not quite sure. That's, that's for something else. Pastors who come from these seminaries, they, they know how to teach justification by faith alone, right? You, I mean, you can go to Romans and just milk after milk after milk, but they don't understand how this applies to the state. They don't understand how it, it applies to education. They don't know how it applies to anything like business or none of it. Friends, we have a problem, and it's only going to be solved by the grace of God. My prayer for each family here at Cross and Crown. That's my prayer tonight, is that we would be diligent in growing to maturity. That we wouldn't be content knowing a few things here and there about basic doctrinal stuff. That we would seek to immerse ourselves in a faith for all of life. That we wouldn't find ourselves falling away like many of the Hebrews were in danger of doing, but instead... We would long for solid food, that, that we would develop our senses to the point where we have the, the wisdom of Christ anointed on our person. There's so, much, there's so much folly out there. Visit a Christian bookstore. Um, it, I can't go in those because it makes me want to say bad things. There's so much blatant foolishness. The recession of Christian influence in, in a society is directly tied to the maturity of the Christians in it. Bottom line, the recession of Christian influence in a society is directly tied to the maturity of the Christians in it. And when we are not mature, when we aren't mature, we become thorns and thistles in a society. When, when we are mature, we receive the blessing of God. And the reason that you see so many thorns and thistles is because we are immature. We're content with attending conference after conference and the same old thing. A conference about worship music, how to get the right lighting, the perfect temperature on the dry ice machine, how to, how to get a pulpit that comes out of the ground. I've always wanted one of those. but A conference about discipleship because we haven't figured that out yet. Conferences about church growth, how to invite 5,000 people in your community to your Easter service. 
trick them with a helicopter drop. <laughs> Church marketing. All of it. We have conferences for everything. And guess what? We have all the immature speakers we need to fill the slots. Because no one knows how to discern good or evil. They just want to be cute. So we have books on spiritual growth that continue to pour out bookstores. And instead of maturity being defined as being able to discern good and evil, it's defined as being able to think about the gospel more. We've created this gospel-centered movement. It's all over the place, you know, because the point of life is to just think about the gospel. This type of behavior has left us in a permanent preschool, and it has fostered all sorts of problems in the church. And may we never do that. May we never be content with repeating just the same old basic thing. But instead, may we be eager to exercise dominion in the world by doing theology. As Rushtuni has said, there is no virtue in remaining a babe in Christ, only sad idiocy. One more thing needs to be said and we'll finish up. If you were to ask the average Christian what it means to be spiritual, you would probably get something like this. Being spiritual means praying a lot, reading your Bible during your quiet time, and attending church. Should we pray, read our Bibles, and fellowship as the church? Yes, no one's arguing that. But this is not the biblical definition of spirituality. I want to take you someplace real quick. Go to 1 Corinthians chapter 2. And Brother John already read this passage, so if you don't have it handy, that's okay. But 1 Corinthians 2, I want to, I want to point out, that's why I had him read this earlier. I want to point out verse 15. This is a verse you should have underlined, and you should be ready to wield it, lest you be confronted by someone who says to you, judge not, because <laughs> they don't know what they're talking about. Matthew 7, 1 is a very popular verse. 1 Corinthians 2.15 says this, But he who is spiritual appraises, the ESV says judges, both of those are adequate, good translations, but he who is spiritual, who is a spiritual person, appraises all things, Jesus too, (laughs) yet he himself is judged by no one. A spiritual person, spirituality is your ability to bring judgment to all things. To use the language of of Hebrews 5.14, your spirituality, your maturity is vested in your ability to discern everything. To discern, appraise, judge, adequately understand all things, especially good and evil. The spiritual man is one who, being filled with the Spirit and, and knowing more than just foundations of doctrine, lives his life applying the truth of the law of God, the law word of God, to all areas and all scenarios. He looks at everything through this covenantal grid, this ethical judicial hermeneutic that runs through all the ethics of God, the righteousness of God, the judgment of God, all of it applies. That's a spiritual person. That is someone we should aim to be. That is the type of maturity that I pray that we develop at Cross and Crown, that we develop the sense of application in our doctrinal pursuits. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we confess that at times we have been fine with the milk of the word. We've been fine with it because it didn't challenge us. It didn't require anything of us. We've, we've, we've been content with sticking with the basics because we oftentimes fear what lies ahead. We repent, therefore, for lacking maturity and for lacking the wisdom to discern good and evil. We ask that you would drop on us through the Spirit a wisdom that surpasses our fleshly understanding 
that we would find ourselves in a position to exercise wise dominion in the world. That like the Queen of Sheba coming to Solomon, the world would find our wisdom to be something worthy of inquiry. I ask this in Christ's holy name. Amen.